Our speaker tonight is a member of the round table. You know Holman Hamilton, you know he's an author, you know he's a thorough student of anything he attempts, and he, his research is complete. I don't think I can say much about Holman, except that every time he talks, it's a pleasure to listen to him, and every time he finishes, he leaves something with us. And with those brief remarks, I'm going to introduce to you the speaker of the evening, Mr. Holman Hamilton. Mr. President, my friends and fellow members of this great round table, I can't begin to tell you how glad I am to be here with you tonight. So many of you have helped me directly with my own historical work, and others have led me to friend number two or friend number three who has given me advice and counsel. I know that you're a good controversial group, and I hope we'll have some of that tonight. And if I don't speak loudly enough, I hope you'll sing out, and if I'm too loud, uh, give me a little of the hush sign. I'm going to give you the meat and potatoes first, and a little salad and dessert later on, reversing perhaps the usual procedure of a cocktail. I'm going to give you the uh, stuff that I know that you will be interested in. Other groups might find it a little tedious. I'll try to make it as interesting as possible, and I think it is meaty. Here goes. Old Rough and Ready and the Civil War. One of the most heartening aspects of a concentration on Lincoln and the Civil War is the widening of historical and biographical horizons to which such concentration leads. Our mental processes seem naturally to direct us from the particular to the general rather than from the general to the particular. This is a lesson not all educators have learned. Lincolnians have learned it. Civil War specialists have learned it. As you and I know, our Civil War explorations bring us into intimate touch with all warfare of all time, with statesmanship not merely of Lincoln's day, but also of Washington's and Wilson's, with some of the deepest and purest thought in the Bible and in Shakespeare and other classics. And our approach, instead of being difficult or aridly academic, is full of the good human juices of our experience and comradeship in the Civil War era. In the realm of American history as a whole, this is preeminently true. Using the Lincoln administration and the Civil War as our base of historical operations, we find ourselves striding forward through Reconstruction and the times of Cleveland and McKinley into our own 20th century. By the same token, we grow more and more fascinated by what went on before Fort Sumter and the Wigwam. Moving back to examine the earlier times, the heyday of Webster, Clay, and Calhoun, Winfield Scott, Zachary Taylor, William Henry Harrison, and Old Hickory Jackson. Tonight I invite you to journey with me not far afield, but briefly into the background of the Civil War to consider the great debate of 1850 and the Civil War that never came, and to contrast old interpretations with what I firmly believe to be the accurate interpretation. This can be a controversial theme, and if you and I wish to make it so, 
all of us can live up to the tried and true round table tradition and give one another the benefit of our criticism, both pro and con. As recently as 1948, Professor Faulkner of Smith College wrote, New Mexico was demanding territorial government in 1850. The petitions were favored by President Taylor. As a matter of record, Taylor advocated not territorial government, but New Mexico's admission into the Union as a state. That was what a major part of the great debate was all about. In 1947, Professors Billington, Lowenberg, and Brock-Cunier placed Charles Sumner in the United States Senate in 1849, two years before he actually took his seat in that chamber. The same authors characterized Alexander Stevens and Robert Toombs as fire eaters in 1850, which they certainly were not in the usually accepted meaning of the term, and which would have surprised Robert Barnwell Rett and William L. Yancey, as well as Toombs and Stevens themselves. In 1939, Burton Hendrick wrote that Howell Cobb deserted his Democratic Party in 1850, joined forces with the anti-slavery Whigs in upholding the compromise measures of that year. On the contrary, the present writer is convinced that the Democratic Party was the principal pro-compromise party. Furthermore, the actual votes in both the Senate and the House deny the Hendrick thesis. The rice of American civilization by the Beards has no doubt influenced readers by the tens of thousands. Yet the Beards declared, once more, as in 1820 and 1833, Clay was to prevail. But he won this time only through the aid of Webster. Professor Frank Hodder's monograph had not yet appeared when the Beard's first book was published. But in subsequent editions, they had several opportunities to incorporate his findings between their boards, and this they never did. Similar historical misinterpretations, including those of Albert J. Beveridge and Albert Bushnell Hart, will be quoted later to buttress the position that numerous leaders in the field have failed to grasp what actually did occur in Washington in 1850. Still, it seems somewhat less fundamental to enumerate additional errors than to probe causation for this batch of them, inquiring what it is that brings historians of more than one generation to misjudge important features of a memorable series of events. Though at first it may appear difficult to determine the raison d'etre of such wholesale failure, using a practical approach makes it extremely easy to isolate the cause. If Professor Faulkner had consulted available sources, would he have written what he did about territorial government for New Mexico? If the three professors had read the Congressional Globe for 1850 with any care, would they have assumed that Sumner was a senator at that time? If Hendrick had studied the compromise votes and speeches in the Senate and the House, would he have blandly asserted that Cobb deserted the Democratic Party when he upheld the compromise? If the Beards had dug deeply in the manuscript collections bearing on the period, could they have attributed the compromise's success wholly to the Whig leadership of Clay and Webster? As a matter of fact, although manuscripts illuminate the truth, beyond the shadow of doubt, neither the Beards nor any other writers needed to go beyond the pages of the globe to see the picture as it really was. Today, we have manuscripts, which serve as illustrations 
of the basic story told in the globe and appendix. Only three need be cited here to demonstrate the degree of some author's errors. The first was penned on June 1st, 1850 by Whig Senator John H. Clark of Rhode Island. Reporting to Secretary of the Treasury Meredith, Clark declared that from the North and West we can safely depend upon Senators John Davis, Samuel S. Phelps, William Upham, Albert C. Green, Truman Smith, Roger S. Baldwin, William H. Seward, William L. Dayton, Jacob W. Miller, Thomas Corwin, and Clark himself, all Whigs. Hannibal Hamlin, James W. Bradbury, Alpheus Felch, Isaac P. Walker, and Henry Dodge, Democrats, plus John P. Hale and Salmon P. Chase. When Clark wrote We, he referred to the anti-compromise people who followed President Taylor and Senator Thomas Hart Benton. Of the Delaware senators, one was pro-Taylor and anti-compromise, the other wavered, but Clark expected him to vote against the compromise. In this letter, limiting his analysis to the North and Northwest plus Delaware, the Rhode Island Senator did not include Benton of Missouri, who stood with Taylor throughout, nor did he list any of the Southern Whigs, at least one of whom might well have sided with the President in a showdown. In like manner, Clark's statement contained no reference to Jefferson Davis and other Southern Democrats, some of whom fought the compromise for reasons diametrically opposed to those of Taylor, Benton, and the Northern Whigs. Clark was content to name the men we can safely depend upon, and these alone were almost numerous enough to uphold a presidential veto of the compromise. It is instructive to note that Clark's summation is echoed in almost every detail in another revealing document composed by Senator Lewis Cass 12 days later and addressed to Henry Ledger. The fact that Cass was pro-compromise and anti-Taylor lends special interest to his assertion that his own Michigan colleague Felch was deserting him and lining up with Taylor and Benton. The third pertinent letter, still in private hands, was sent by Illinois Senator Stephen A. Douglas to the two Democratic journalists responsible for his paper in Springfield. Dated August 3, 1850, Douglas' communication reveals some of the reasons for the failure of Clay's attempt to pass the compromise in what was known as the omnibus form, even after the death of Taylor. From the first, Douglas and Clay had seen eye to eye respecting the compromise end product each was interested in. However, the little giant wanted component parts of compromise legislation voted on separately one at a time. Clay, on the other hand, had been determined to push the program as a whole through Congress at one swoop. Realizing that he could never bring Clay around to the methods he himself preferred, the younger man gave way to the elderly Kentuckian in the late winter and spring when Taylor was living, and even as late as the end of July when Fillmore occupied the White House. Douglas did this despite the fact that as chairman of the Senate Committee on Territories, he had at least as good a claim to the authorship of the compromise as Clay himself. The certainty that Clay's omnibus bill would have failed with Zachary Taylor in the executive mansion is demonstrated by the fact that it did fail when the well-disposed Millard Fillmore resided there, with all the power of the patronage ranged on Clay's side. When Harry of the West saw his measure vanquished once and for all, 
the exhausted old Whig beat a retreat to Newport's beaches, while Douglas captained compromise forces and succeeded where Clay had failed. What Douglas did was precisely that which he had indicated he could do at the outset, successfully promote piecemeal instead of combined legislation. Douglas's letter of August 3rd to Charles H. Lanfear and George Walker accurately prophesied that what did happen would happen. Aside from pointing out that numerous historians have been slovenly and superficial in their research, and aside from showing that the real events differed markedly from their version of presumed events, it should be stressed that the influence of Clay and Webster has been overemphasized. The late Professor Hodder concluded his treatment of the subject by saying that the Compromise of 1850 was more a democratic measure than a Whig measure and more a southern measure than a northern one. However, it is unlikely that even Hodder grasped the fact that as long as President Taylor lived, only two northern Whig senators followed the lead of Clay and Webster. Every northern Whig senator, save Webster himself and James Cooper of Pennsylvania, stood with Taylor against Webster and Clay. With this fundamental fact established by Clark's documentation, by Cass's and Douglas's, and by speeches and votes reported in the Globe, we next come to the question, why has so extreme a clay warp or a Webster twist been given to the record over so long a period? No one can say with certainty. Here we are dealing in the borderland of imponderables. And here, your speaker ventures to offer a purely personal opinion. Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun, and Daniel Webster were outstanding men in 1850. They had been prominent in national councils for more than a third of a century. They were old men, and this was the last time they appeared on the Senate stage together. Each of the three delivered dramatic speeches there, the last impressive speeches of their careers. The theater of the situation, the sheer dramatic effect involved, has so appealed to the imaginations of historians that there has been a strong tendency on the part of writers to assume that the words and actions of the old masters packed more of a punch than Senate votes actually indicate. In history after history and biography after biography, Webster and Calhoun and Clay dominate the scene. Some authors do not forget that Jefferson Davis and William H. Seward and one or two others also spoke. But how many Americans of 1951 recall such other notable addresses as those of Jacob W. Miller, Hannibal Hamlin, Thomas J. Rusk, Solomon W. Downs, William L. Dayton? How many realize that Sam Houston in the Senate in 1850 anticipated the Lincoln of 1858 by saying, a nation divided against itself cannot stand? How many know what Douglas said then? or Salmon P. Chase, or Toombs or Stevens in the house? Did the title of Winston Churchill's book, The Gathering Storm, seem neat and novel in 1949? Who was aware that Jefferson Davis employed the same phrase back in February of 1850? Or that the Mississippi senator also anticipated the William J. Bryan of 1896 and the Herbert Hoover of 1932 in his reference to the likelihood of grass growing in the streets of American cities. Clay, Calhoun, and Webster, magic names. 
have altered the true picture of 1850, especially insofar as it should highlight the 1850-1861 connection. Calhoun died on the last day of March in 50. Clay and Webster died in 52. None of the three was present to exert his influence on the events of 60 and 61. But other key figures of 1850 were very much alive immediately before and during the four-year Bloody Brothers War. Nearly all the principal civilian leaders of both the United States and the Confederate States, with the notable exception of Abraham Lincoln, served as members of the 31st Congress and said something significant in Washington in the course of the great debate. When one realizes the close conjunction between 1850 opinions and 1861 attitudes, occurrences during the Taylor administration take on new and added import. Thus, after Clay, but before Calhoun and Webster, Mississippi Senator Davis in 50 rose to oppose not only statehood for New Mexico, but statehood for California as well, and indeed the Douglas Clay conception of national compromise. It is the fashion to think of Davis as a man of merely legal mind, autocratic and of little humor, who could dictate but could not argue or listen. Scrutiny of his life reveals that despite the manacles of self-discipline, he could be intensely human. The former army lieutenant, who was capable of writing an impassioned love letter, sprinkled with wit and gaiety, had developed his intellect for eight sad years on his plantation until he became one of the ablest and most scholarly of Southerners. No one understood slavery in its rosier aspects more clearly than this Mississippian who worked out a patriarchal system of caring for the toilers on his land. If slavery could be ideal, which Northerners doubted, then it was ideal at Briarfield. Against the subtle, selfish attitude of revolutionary Northern aggressors, as he said, Southerners claim for their institution only the protection accorded every other species of property. Neither section should have power in Congress to trample on the other's rights. Northern control of the House should be balanced by a Southern majority in the Senate. With legislation thus restricted, no encroachments could jeopardize either portion of the Union. The reverse being the case, who knows, he asked, how soon the time may come when men will rise in arms to oppose the laws. The federal government was one of limited powers, he said. As a mere agent of the states, it could not prohibit slavery in the West. Sovereignty rests in the states, and no other power can exclude property from territories held by the states in common. Here was the fundamental state rights principle as applied to the Mexican acquisitions reduced to its least common denominator. Thus, the Mississippian drove home his points with hammer blows of precision logic. Davis denied that nature excluded slavery from California and New Mexico. Slave economy, he felt, was adaptable to gold washing, mining, and farming dependent on irrigation, even as it was adaptable to cotton planting. Moreover, he was convinced that both slavery and the slave trade were blessings to the African. As for the Nashville Convention, which was currently being planned with secession then and there as a possibility, it stemmed from doctrines of Jefferson and Madison, said Davis, 
which went back to the American Revolution and thence to Green Runnymede. If necessary, we will claim from this government, as the barons claim from John, the grant of another Magna Carta for our protection. If seeds of disunion have been sown broadcast, they have not been scattered by the North. Guilty Northerners should bear in mind what a separate Southern nation would mean. Grass will grow, grass will grow on your pavements, Davis predicted, and shipping will abandon your ports. We who produce the great staple upon which your commerce and manufacturing rest, we will produce staples still. Shipping would continue to fill Southern harbors, but the ruins of Carthage, the moldering palaces of Venice, the faded purple of Tyre, furnish precedents for northern blights in the event of a sectional division. What was to be done about sectional differences? Prevention of a north-south split depended upon the northern majority, Davis said. The southern minority could pass no measure, therefore I have none to suggest. What the south desired was permanent security. California's irregular admission into the Union could not be accepted. Beyond this, Davis would not specify. Any statesman of the lost cause, Burton J. Hendrick has written, not one of Davis's hundreds of addresses has added a single gem to American literature. Possibly not, but that speech of 1850 was one of the strongest presentations of the Southern case and the Southern way of life ever achieved by a Southern orator. It was a standout effort, and how prophetic it was not only of Davis's attitude toward the South and the Union in 61, but also of his reliance on King Cotton in Montgomery and Richmond. Less than three weeks after Davis completed his remarks, Hannibal Hamlin addressed the Senate. A Democrat from Maine, he lost no time in wading waist-deep into the debate. His oration coming the day after Calhoun's was in part an answer to the South Carolinian, but it was also a reply to Davis for Hamlin took strong ground in favor of California's admission as a free state without delay. Irrelevant subjects somehow had found their way into the discussion, Hamlin said. Territorial governments, the Texas-New Mexico boundary, restoration of fugitive slaves to their masters had come to complicate the debate, which should be limited to essentials. There was one great issue properly before the Senate, and that issue was California's admission Southerners now objected to the approval of statehood for California, but had not such Southern leaders as Calhoun formerly sponsored what they now condemned? Had they not in the previous Congress advocated California statehood when they thought California might come into the Union with a slavery feature attached? This was true, Hamlin asserted, and he quoted the Southerners' remarks to prove his point. What changed the minds of these statesmen? who now deplored what they formerly approved, asked Hamlin. In 1848 and 49, the South had tried to insert a pro-slavery clause in California's Constitution. Now the situation was altered, and they did not enjoy the irony of events. They were apologists, Hamlin implied, evolving doctrines to meet immediate needs and abandoning them when it suited their purposes. Worthy and intelligent Californians have come here asking us to admit them into this union, that, sir, is the question for our decision. I have no doubt, he said, that California's star is to stud with others our national flag. If perhaps it is understandable that students have ignored the 1850 pro-Taylor position of such senators as Miller and Davis and Dayton, 
The overlooking of Hamlin's speech is almost beyond comprehension. Not only did Hamlin go on to new prominence as Lincoln's running mate in 1860, but throughout the intervening decade, he loomed as an anti-slavery stalwart in New England and Washington. If Calhoun's words are reported in detail in the histories, is it fair or balanced to bypass Hamlin? Should this Democrat's decision to follow the Whig president receive the briefest, if any, mention? The meeting of Clay, Calhoun, and Webster in the Senate chamber for the final time has so captured his Americans' imaginations that only a few are aware that other actors were not pygmies. I'm not going into many speeches, so there's one more that I want to give you. I'll give you that by way of warning. Hannibal Hamlin's opposite number during the Civil War was Vice President Alexander H. Stevens of the Confederacy. The 1850-61 record of Stevens is peculiarly interesting when it is compared to that of his fellow Georgian Howell Cobb. Stevens voted against secession in 61. Cobb worked and voted for it. But in 1849 and 50, Cobb was as staunch a unionist as there was in either House of Congress. Early in 49, he was one of only four Southern Democrats who refused to sign Calhoun's Southern Address. Later the same year, Cobb was elected Speaker of the House and in that capacity favored the Compromise Resolutions. Stevens, in 1850, was pro-compromise, too. Like Cobb, he was ready to settle for the Douglas Clay program aimed at sectional conciliation. However, so colorful was Stevens' language in 50, so drastic were the tactics he employed for the sake of the compromise, that it is easy to understand why some historians have misinterpreted his overall position. Two short years before, like Abraham Lincoln, Stevens had been one of a group of seven young Indians congressmen who were the original tailor for president people in the House. Nevertheless, by 1850, not only were Taylor and Stevens on opposite sides of the compromise struggle, but Stevens talked of civil war in the event Taylor's federal troops kept Texas volunteers from taking over the Santa Fe portion of New Mexico. The first federal gun fired against the people of Texas without authority of law, Stevens wrote the editor of the Washington National Intelligencer, will signal free men from the Delaware to the Rio Grande to rally to the rescue. Stevens was also at least partly responsible for the official censure of President Taylor in the House, a censure which was wiped off the records two days after it was effected, but was indicative of the way Stevens felt nonetheless. It was Stevens, too, who threatened Taylor with impeachment. Confronting Secretary of the Navy Preston, Stevens told him that if troops were ordered to Santa Fe, the president would be impeached. Who will impeach him? Preston asked. I will, if no one else does, Stevens replied. On the floor of the house, the dyspeptic, cadaverous Stevens declared, you may think that the suppression of an outbreak in the southern states would be a holiday job for a few of your northern regiments, but you may find to your cost in the end that seven millions of people fighting for their rights, their homes, and their hearthstones cannot be easily conquered. Let it be borne in mind that these quotations by no means tell the whole of the Stevens story. His basic viewpoint was pro-union, pro-compromise, pro-conciliation. He said, I am for conciliation if it can be accomplished upon any reasonable and just principles. Still, the 1850 language of the man is striking. 
and in contrast to his subdued, moderate, temperate tone a decade later. Robert Toombs, the Confederacy's original Secretary of State, and William H. Seward, Lincoln's ranking cabinet member, were both prominent in 1850. Toombs was serving his third term in the House while Seward was the outspoken and powerful freshman senator from New York. Both delivered famous addresses, Toombs the Hamilcar speech, Seward the higher law utterance. It is tempting to quote at some length excerpts from the 1850 House or Senate speeches of Seward and Toombs, of Salmon P. Chase, of James A. Seddon, destined to serve longer than any other man in the difficult post of Confederate Secretary of War, of Stephen A. Douglas, whose presidential quest would end in failure in 1860, of Sam Houston, pro-Union governor of Texas in 1861, and many, many other distinguished Civil War figures, North and South, pro-Confederacy, and pro-Union. All these leaders were on Capitol Hill during the Taylor administration, and all, with the partial exceptions of Stevens and Cobb, spoke and acted in 1850 much as they were to do in 1861, to so striking an extent, in fact, that their subsequent records could have been anticipated to a great degree on the basis of their earlier positions. Time does not permit point-by-point -point examination of the addresses of each one of these prominent individuals. But before terminating this part of the discussion, it does seem essential to compare and emphasize the President of the United States in 1850 and the President of the United States in 1861. When Zachary Taylor died in July 1850, Abraham Lincoln delivered a eulogy of old rough and ready at the City Hall here in this city of Chicago. In his remarks, the future 16th President said he did not believe that all patriotism and wisdom died with Taylor, but wisdom and patriotism, Lincoln avowed, are worthless unless sustained by the people's confidence. And in Taylor's passing, we have lost a degree of that confidence which will not soon pertain to any successor. I fear, said Lincoln, the one great question of the day is not now so likely to be partially acquiesced in by the different sections of the Union as it would have been could General Taylor have been spared to us. The presidency is no bed of roses, said Lincoln. Taylor, like others, found thorns within it. Still, Lincoln was convinced that when Taylor's conduct shall be viewed in the calm light of history, he will be found to have deserved as little censure as any man succeeding him. What did Zachary Taylor favor? Briefly, although he himself was a slaveholder, he favored slavery's containment in states where the institution already was legal. He opposed projection of slavery into the West in lands recently acquired from Mexico. This was precisely what Lincoln himself advocated. In Illinois in 1858, it was also what the Republican Party platform endorsed at the Wigwam in Chicago in 1860. Prior to his election and inauguration, and for many months after the Civil War began, Lincoln asserted and reasserted that he was content to let slavery remain in the part of the Union where it was legal. Lincoln primarily was pro-Union and anti-extension. Taylor, too, was pro-Union and anti-extension. At Fredericksburg, Virginia, in 1850, 
Five months prior to his death, Taylor declared, as to the Constitution and the Union, I have taken an oath to support the one, and I cannot do so without preserving the other, unless I commit perjury, which I certainly don't intend to do. We must cherish the Constitution to the last. There will be local questions to disturb our peace, but after all, we must fall back upon George Washington's farewell advice and preserve the Union at all hazards. Previously in his annual message, Taylor had said, attachment to the Union should be habitually fostered in every American heart. For more than half a century, this Union has stood unshaken. The patriots who formed it have descended to the grave, yet it remains the proudest monument to their memory. Its dissolution would be the greatest of calamities. Upon its preservation must depend our own happiness and that of countless generations to come. Whatever dangers may threaten it, I shall stand by it and maintain it in its integrity to the full extent of the obligations imposed and the powers conferred upon me by the Constitution. Through the medium of these citations and quotations, we see not only the parts played by 1861-65, leaders of the Confederate and Union causes in the 1850 drama, but also the parallels between their positions in the two periods. We come to understand, at least in part, the continuity of thought and effort of Davis, Lincoln, and some of their chief subordinates from one decade to another, without denying for a moment the picturesque and even important roles of Clay, Calhoun, and Webster in 1850, we can restore the setting to its wanted perspective, acknowledging that younger actors were extremely significant too. We grasp now the absurdity of Albert Bushnell Hart's statement that in early 1850, the compromise was already decided since the agreement of Clay and Webster meant the effective coalition of the Southern Whigs and Northern Cotton Whigs. We understand the fallacy of the same historian's allegation that Webster's 7th of March speech was virtually an announcement that the Senate would vote for the compromise. Actually, President Taylor's death, Millard Fillmore's accession, together with a switch from Clay's methods to Douglas's methods, turned the trick, and none of these things could have been foreseen in March. Albert J. Beveridge went into considerable detail to do justice to the remarks of Davis, Seward, Douglas, and Chase, as well as to Clay, Webster, and Calhoun. For this, he deserves commendation. But on pages 118 to 130 of Beveridge's second volume, his lucid discussion suddenly breaks down and falls to bits. The importance of Taylor's death is not even mentioned. Beveridge seems satisfied to say, so opposition disintegrated, and one after another, the measures suggested by Clay were enacted. Thus, the poorly informed reader of Beveridge's book is wholly at a loss to know how and why the compromise finally pulled through. I first became interested in Zachary Taylor and in the Compromise of 1850 because of prior interest in the Civil War itself and as the result of my curiosity in what went before the Civil War, especially in the key question 
could that bloody conflict have been prevented? It is generally forgotten today that a very real Civil War threat existed at the time Taylor died. Not South Carolina, but Texas was then up in arms. Texas troops were in the process of being mobilized. The Texas-New Mexico boundary controversy was the red-hot issue of the hour, and sympathy for Texas was spreading in the South. President Taylor profoundly affected the march of events in his lifetime, and his death resulted in as wholesale a transformation of policy in the nation's political temper as ever occurred in similar circumstances. What would have happened had Zachary Taylor lived and filled out the term to which he had been elected? The late Herbert D. Foster outlined as tellingly as anyone else economic and social developments between 50 and 61. In every aspect detailed by Foster, the North gained appreciably over the South in population, industrialization, and especially its railway network the North acquired an enormous military potential advantage. Predicated on this alone, the differences obtaining in 50 and 61, it was fortunate for the Union cause that the pro-Union Taylor died when he did. Yet that is hardly the whole story. Industrial, manpower, and communication phases of changes made in those 11 years were no more important than political and psychological features. In 1850, the country still had two national political parties with considerable popular backing. Just as Whiggery had not died, the Democrats had not split, and the sectional Republican Party, later anathema to the South, was not even in existence. Later, many Southerners concluded, some very reluctantly, that they could trust neither Republicans nor the Northern Democratic wing. In 1850, this line of thinking had by no means stiffened, although blood might have been shed by Southerners supporting Texan militiamen and by Northerners spearheaded by Brevet Colonel John Monroe. The spark of wholesale civil war would have been dampened, I believe, by conservative convictions of millions in both sections. Despite South Carolina's sympathy with Texas, and the militancy of Texas Governor P.H. Bell, Taylor had an excellent chance of quelling Texan aggressiveness with far less slaughter than that of the 60s. This is my opinion and only my opinion. It cannot be proved one way or the other. Admittedly, a rebuttalist may argue that in 50, a unified South could have defeated a unified North. But had the South already achieved the degree of sectional solidarity existing 10 years afterward? Unless this is answered affirmatively, from the Union viewpoint, it was tragic that Taylor did not live to assert his unionism, thereby possibly preventing a brother's war of gigantic proportions. Hindsight teaches that the compromise failed to attain the goal which its sponsors eloquently claimed for it. The compromise did not prevent civil war. It merely postponed the resort to arms and perhaps made it inevitable. Taylor was convinced the compromise was faulty. Lacking the congressional backing possessed by Andrew Jackson in 32 and by Abraham Lincoln in 61, Taylor took a position comparable to theirs 
and carried his unfulfilled measures to his grave. This concludes the meaty portion of the talk. If you do think it is meaty, perhaps a little bit too much so, I would like, if I may, since I think I have a couple of minutes more, to give you a little of the, the lighter side, because that was, that was fun too. I'd like to give you two or three of the campaign songs of 1848. Zachary Taylor was running for president against Lewis Cass and Martin Van Buren. The Whigs sang, Rough and Ready is the man whom all good Whigs delight in. He's just the sort for president and all the man for fighting. Come raise the song the states along from Maine to Louisiana. We've got the coon that sealed the doom of Polk and Santa Ana. And then there was the Free Soil song, which included this verse. He who votes for Zachy Taylor needs a keeper or a jailer. He who for old Cass could be, he is a Cass without the sea. <laughs> the man on whom we love to look is Martin Van of Kinderhook. I always liked that one. I'd also like to tell you a little about my research. I went down to New Orleans and met the granddaughter of old Rough and Ready. That was back in my 20s and in her 80s. She was a mighty spirited, fiery little old lady. She also was, of course, the daughter of General Dick Taylor of the Confederacy, the author of that, what I think, a delightful book, Destruction and Reconstruction, one of the best written books by an active major participant in the Civil War. And Mrs. Stouffer was very, very gracious to me. She uh, gave me some crepe Suzettes that were the equal of anything I've ever had. And then she said to me as she handed me papers and newspaper clippings and sat me down in a room with Taylor's portraits and busts and daguerreotypes around me, Mr. Hamilton, I'm very glad to help you, even though you are a damn Yankee. <laughs> I liked that, and I also liked it equally a little bit later when uh, the little old lady in black came into the room. I saw her out of the corner of my eye, and she was clutching something, something in her hand. And I stood up to greet her, and she handed me a, a bottle of pre-World War I old Taylor whiskey. And she said to me, Mr. Hamilton, down south, the ladies just hand the gentleman the bottle, and turn their backs. Monroe will be in every half hour to see that you have plenty of ice. <laughs> now, after that experience, and I've tried to be objective, I submit to you that it is a little difficult, as Ralph and I have often told each other, for any historian or biographer to be objective, strictly. In connection with that little episode, I'd like to read you just a few lines from Dick Taylor's book including his description of a mint julep. Probably many of you have read the book. In this part of it, it's in the fore part of the Civil War, and Dick Taylor is in Virginia, and he's invited to come over and have breakfast with a distant relative of his whom he has never met. This is in Orange County, which was the birthplace of old Rough and Ready, his father. This immediate region, wrote Dick, had not yet been touched by war flowering plants and rose trees in full bloom attested the glorious wealth of June. On the broad portico to welcome us stood the host with his fresh, charming wife and a little retired, a white-headed butler. Greetings over with host and lady, this delightful creature with ebon face beaming hospitality advanced, holding a salver 
on which rested a huge silver goblet filled with Virginia's nectar, mint julep. Quantities of cracked ice rattled refreshingly in the goblet. Sprigs of fragrant mint appeared above its broad rim. A mass of white sugar, too sweetly indolent to melt, rested on the mint. And like rosebuds on a snowbank, luscious strawberries crowned the sugar. Ah, that julep. Mars ne'er received such tipple from the hands of Ganymede. <laughs> There's also the little anecdote which may or may not be familiar to you. I'm sure that many of you know more about Daniel Harvey Hill than I do. But he's interested me, and I've been particularly interested in quotations from a little book of his called Elements of Algebra. I hope that no previous speaker has given these. Ralph assured me that they had not, so I'll try this one little item on you. D.H. Hill was one of those Southerners who didn't like these damn Yankees writing all the textbooks. And he thought the Southerners ought to do something about writing them. And you'll remember that at the Battle of Buena Vista, the Indiana outfit didn't behave too well. That's my own state, and I say it not through any shame, but with a kind of a backhanded slap at Colonel Bowles, who disobeyed orders and didn't behave very well, and Indiana as a whole took it in the neck as a result. He was later a gentleman who was connected, supposedly, I guess accurately, with the Knights of the Golden Circle in the Civil War. In any event, the Indiana group didn't have too good a reputation in the South. So D.H. Hill included this algebra problem in his Elements of Algebra, a textbook for Southern students. The Buena Vista battlefield is six and a half miles from Saltillo. Two Indiana volunteers ran away from the battle at the same time. One ran half a mile faster than the other and reached Saltillo five minutes and 40, 54 and 6.11 seconds sooner than the other. Required their respective rates of travel. <laughs> The answer, if you care to know, is five and a half and six miles per hour, <laughs> which an eminent Southern historian has observed was a rather moderate speed for Indiana volunteers in flight. <laughs> and then for the benefit of those of you who have any Connecticut or New England backgrounds, you might be interested in this one other item of D.H. Hill's. And I don't have the answer to this. I guess the mathematicians could figure it out. A Connecticut Yankee mixes a certain number of wooden nutmegs, which cost him a quarter of a cent apiece, with a quantity of real nutmegs worth four cents apiece, sells the whole assortment for $44, and gains $3.75 by the fraud. How many wooden nutmegs were there? <laughs> Finally, with your permission, I would like to say that if this Civil War of Taylor's time had been fought, maybe we wouldn't all be here today, and maybe for that reason we should be uh, glad that the old gentleman died. Also, with your permission, I'd like to talk the world will no long remember. What we say here, it can never forget what we did here. It is rather for us the living to dedicate ourselves to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion.
that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, and that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and the government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. Thank you very much. Thank you, Homer. Now we reach the discussion period. Elmer, you better get up there. Holman, suppose the compromise of 1850 had not gone through. What's that? Well, of course, my uh, Elmer, my view of that is that I tried to indicate that no one can say it's one fellow's guess may be as good as another's. My own feeling is that one of two things would have happened. Either there would have been some kind of a civil war or civil disorder during Taylor's administration. Or, conceivably, the whole thing might have been prevented. I'm certain of one thing, and that is that it would not have occurred in the way that it did occur. I don't know if that's a fair answer, but that's the best I can do. John? I wanted to ask is this. I'm left just a little unclear on what principle Taylor was opposed to the compromise in view of his in other words, could you give us a little background on why we're opposed to compromise plan? Yes, I think I can on that. It's a very interesting situation. Taylor's career really was divided into two parts. He was a slaveholder. He was one of less than 1,800 Southerners who owned as many as 100 slaves. In other words, he belonged to a very high economic group in the South. At the same time, he was a soldier, and he was a nationalist soldier. He had been early in his life a Jeffersonian, as his father was. Later, he had been a Jacksonian. He split away from Jackson for many of the reasons that other Whigs did, northern as well as southern, back in the very early 30s. He was a Whig in 1840. He was a Whig in 1844, although he did not vote at any time in his life. He was a Whig in 1848, and the reason that he courted Democratic support and Native American support in the early part of that campaign was that he realized it was a minority party. He wanted to get extra votes from other parties. He was a union man, as a number of his letters indicate, and as I've tried to bring out in the book, he was a union man throughout the campaign, both pre-convention and post-convention. But he simply was not in a position in which he could speak out clearly on that subject prior to his election. If he had, I believe he would never have been elected and he might well never have been nominated. However, he was a union man all the way through. There are about four letters he wrote prior to his election which indicate that very, very clearly. One was to the Cincinnati Signal, which he wrote in 1847, and that surprised and shocked a good many people. Very early in his administration, he sent an agent out to California to see to it that California was brought in as a state and both the Secretary of State and Governor Crittenden of Kentucky were very clear in their support of bringing it in free as well as Whig. A good many Whigs in the South did oppose the extension of slavery, and Taylor was one of them. He took perhaps a more decided opinion on that than many of the others, but John Bell, for example, of Tennessee was going in that direction. Ballard Preston of Virginia was. Edward Stanley of North Carolina. He was a soldier. He had a military man's view of many things. He was devoted to the Union, 
and he was reared in that devotion to the Union concept. All those things added together led him to take the stand that he did. He also was opposed, I would say, to there were certain things in the compromise that seemed to him irreconcilable, and later they turned out to be irreconcilable. To what degree do you believe he was influenced by Seward, the charges made that he was under Seward's thumb after he had been in the presidency a short time? Well, I would say that Seward and he certainly went uh, in the same direction after his election. Seward went farther than he did in his speech. Seward did not follow the administration line perfectly. In his higher law speech, for example, Taylor uh, didn't like the phraseology of that, and by the way, neither did Thurlow Weed, who was Seward's alter ego. I believe that Taylor was a strong pro-union and anti-extension man long before he shook hands with William H. Seward the first time. Next, Don Riddle. Well, you have a few words from you. You're interested in this period and stuff. I certainly would like to uh, speak very highly of Holman's book as well as what he had to say this evening. To my mind, it's a very useful study, causing me, and I hope it will cause many other people, to rethink that whole matter. And I told Holman before the meeting, this book which has been most thought-provoking to me of any book that I can recall in a great many years. I'm still trying to come to a conclusion the degree to which I can follow him in his conclusion. It seems to me that he has made an excellent case, and I am heartily with him in the point that he has made at the beginning this evening. The absolute necessity for anyone who is going to do something and have it worth anyone's attention to go through the sources. The globe alone, as he pointed out, would have prevented many egregious errors that have been made. To go behind that to the manuscript material is an absolute necessity. And I know of no one doing historical research and writing it present time, who has done that more thoroughly than Holman Hamilton has done. As some of you know, my recent work has covered some of the same ground, uh, rather more attention to the immediately earlier period, but at all events it has overlapped to a considerable extent. And anything that I have uh, done in that field, uh, I find that his work certainly stands up under the closest examination that I've been able to give. I feel personally deeply indebted to him for this evening's program as well as for his book. I would, I would like to say something. I want to thank you from a very full heart for that sincere and gracious tribute. I thought the, the round table only uh, indulged in pyrotechnics and I find that I, I feel a little emotional about this. I'd also like to say, and this is a good opportunity, that Dr. Riddle and Ralph and so many, many members of the round table have helped me beyond words. Mr. Owens, Charlie Owens, and Paul Angle and so many here. I feel that in trying to concentrate on getting this story across, I may have been a little neglectful of my friends and I deeply appreciate it and I thank you for that wonderful tribute.
Ralph, do you want to add something before I ask you a little bit? Oh, yes. In the last two days that Holman's been here, at odd moments, as we were running across town or going to a radio program, we were, have been discussing the general in the White House. There is some discussion these days of generals who might be in the White House, and there are some rather interesting parallels. General McCloskey has officially withdrawn. I mean, he doesn't seem one of the others. The relief to now have at least one general who knows his mind on the subject. But I think that we'd appreciate your discussing for a few moments, Holman, the rather striking parallels of the Taylor period involving at least two present military men. Well, thank you very much, Ralph. That is a big order, as our president has said. Ralph has had me uh, doing all kinds of strange and wonderful and amazing things. He had me on television and radio, and now all of you have invited me to be here with you tonight. I will give you this briefly. The Truman-MacArthur controversy, in many respects, is a parallel and a repetition of the Polk-Taylor controversy. Taylor wasn't withdrawn from Mexico, but uh, after all, General MacArthur didn't come back from Japan for a fairly long time. And if Taylor had stayed down there several years longer, certainly the trend was in that direction. Also, if old Zach had happened to have lost the Battle of Buena Vista, uh, I have an idea that he would have been in for some pretty severe punishment. There's a, a striking similarity, a striking parallel. In one of my early chapters, I go into detail on Taylor's remarks about what he thought about President Polk and some of the members of the cabinet. He wrote to his son-in-law, Dr. Robert C. Wood, that there was nobody he wanted to see dead, but that if anyone had to die, he would just as soon hear of President Polk's death <laughs> as anyone else. There's a striking similarity there. Also, I would say that from the standpoint of... Uh, I'm assuming something, perhaps. A uh, striking similarity between the Eisenhower campaign, especially as of this very moment, and the Taylor campaign as of most of 1847 and the forepart of 1848. James Russell Lowell, in his Bigelow papers, uh, wrote, put these words into Taylor's mouth. As to my principles, I glory in having nothing of the sort. I ain't a Whig, I ain't a Tory. I'm just a candidate, in short. <laughs> Anyone else? As uh, we know from the recent work on Calhoun, Calhoun traveled the road from nationalism to sectionalism. Was his uh, history unique among the major figures in the 1850 Compromise, or were there any others who had traveled that same sort of road and had such a shift in viewpoints and used to the old days? Well, I would say that the Webster story and the Calhoun story were just about as opposite as they could be. Back in Webster's early career, he was very definitely a sectionalist. In Calhoun's early career, he was definitely a nationalist. And then they began to change. So you have Webster starting here and Calhoun starting here, and then they come this way. And then finally, Calhoun is the sectionalist and Webster is the nationalist. As the economic interests of their sections changed, as the attitudes of their colleagues changed and the voters at home. The political positions of the two men changed and they evolved mighty neat notions to back up their economic interests and to serve as a foundation for them. Isn't Anyone that a fact that Rhett was about the only one who was thoroughly consistent from beginning to end? Uh, Robert Barnwell Rhett. Yes. 
I would say so, and, and certainly Garrison was for a long, long time. Holman. I don't like to ask a question, but I don't know how else to get around it. Uh, I'm just wondering if in your research you found any new material that might put any light, of, further light, upon uh, Zach Taylor's dislike of his daughter marrying Jeff Davis. Well, the story there, I think, is relatively clear. I don't think it's changed in the last 10 years. I wrote a chapter on that for my first volume, and as far as I know, the story is just about the same. Initially, Taylor seems to have disliked Davis, or rather, he seems to have opposed the marriage of his daughter to Davis because he didn't want his daughters to marry army men. Mrs. Taylor had spent almost her entire life on the frontier. It was a rugged life was hired on the wives of army officers, and old, rough, and ready didn't want his daughters putting up with the same hardship. So, of course, in the fullness of time, all three of his daughters married army men, which was a perfectly logical conclusion. Davis, however, did offend Taylor personally, as in addition to this anti-army man attitude of the generals. He did offend him personally, and the story that there's the most justification for goes back to a court-martial uh, that Davis and Taylor and a, an officer named uh, Thomas F. Smith were uh, to be members of this court-martial. There was to be a fourth member. He had not brought his uniform, having been recently transferred. He was wanted to serve without it. They took a vote on whether he could serve without his full-dress uniform. Taylor voted one way, according to the story. Smith voted the other way, and Davis voted with Smith. Whereupon, old Zach is said to have said, no man who votes with Tom Smith can marry my daughter. Now, uh, later on, of course, Sarah Knox and Jeff found ways to get together up in Prairie du Chien. They got together at the house of the parents of one of her girlfriends. And her girlfriend was having trouble with Papa, too. So the girlfriend and her beau got together over at Sarah Knox's house. And everybody had a fine time. And also, Sarah Knox and Jeff used to Paradox would take a walk uh, to the edge of town and would take uh, little Dick Taylor and little Betty along with her. And then Jeff would suddenly appear. And then uh, Sarah Knox would say to the children, uh, you can run and play a little bit. And during that period, Jeff and Sarah Knox had an opportunity to get somewhat more intimately acquainted. Now, Jeff resigned from the Army. He met that provision. Sarah Knox waited until she was 21 years old. She met the parental objection provision for two and a half years. I think she must have been a very high grade and interesting girl. The what little evidence there is left or a few letters that remained would indicate that she was. They were married at her aunt's house. The aunt was Zachary Taylor's sister. She was given in marriage by his brother, Hancock Taylor. Her own sister and brother-in-law attended the wedding. Her mother sent her love. Old Zach sent some money. And then they went off to their honeymoon and down to Louisiana and Mississippi, and within three months, Sarah Knox Taylor died, Sarah Knox Taylor Davis. This, I believe, changed Jefferson Davis's entire career and personality. He had been a, a rather happy-go-lucky young Army lieutenant up to that time. He became a scholar. He was deeply bereaved. He, in fact, he almost died himself. He lived for eight sad years on his plantation, seeing practically no one. He was surrounded by his books. He studied and read and talked hard and long with his ambitious brother, Joe. 
He came out of that environment to marry Verena Howell and to serve in Congress, to go back to the Army, to distinguish himself in the Mexican War. Taylor and he were exceedingly intimate in the Mexican War. Whenever Taylor could, he would be accompanied on short missions by the Mississippi Rifles of Jefferson Davis. He seemed to like to have him with him, and Davis helped Taylor save the day at Buena Vista. Davis was wounded there, and Taylor is said to have said of Davis at that time, my daughter was a better judge of man than I was. Later on in the White House, there were no more constant visitors to the Taylor family than the Davises, Jeff and Verena. They spent a great deal of time there. They were admitted to the intimate family circle on the second floor, and the second Mrs. Jefferson Davis, her testimony regarding Mrs. Taylor is one of the two or three items we have that we can depend on as to what kind of a person she was. Very interesting and colorful story, and incidentally, I always thought Jeff Davis's life would make a dandy movie. Maybe that's an idea for you, Ralph. Holman, I won't mind if I ask you a very personal question. Not at all, Bill. Where were you when present president, Mr. Truman, recited the Gettysburg Address? I've <laughs> 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 been talking about Jeff Davis, don't you think a, a new life with Jeff Davis would be very much in order? Well, I personally think so, decidedly. There is no good life of Jeff Davis, as you well know. In fact, the, the, I suppose the best one was very disappointing to me. As you go into research, I mean, I found as I went into research on Jeff Davis, one is astounded at the clearness of his thinking and the vividness of his expression, even after the war. And uh, uh, Paul Angle's back in a corner, hidden, isn't he? Paul's still here? Paul, would you care to add something to the remarks this evening? Of course, is uh, an assumption. 